I'd invite you now to uh, grab your Bibles and uh, turn to the Old Testament book of Jonah, of Jonah. As we uh, close out our sermon series this summer that, that we've entitled Our Greatest Hits, or at least uh, our favorite maybe passages uh, found in Scripture, um, this is kind of the close of this, and next week we're going to shift to a, a four-week study where we highlight the, the core values of our life group before uh, eventually towards the very end of the summer launching into the book of Nehemiah, which we will cover um, all throughout this coming fall. Um, but uh, as, as we close things out, I actually get to, get to have two favorites that I get to bring for this series. And so as I wrestled through it, um, I landed on what has uh, been a story and a passage of Scripture that has quickly been rising to the top of the charts for me. And uh, it is the story that uh, all of us are probably very familiar with, at least some version of this story. Even the most biblically illiterate person out there has at least heard of the story of Jonah and the whale, right? We even, you know, it's so iconic, even our uh, Little Movers classroom over here in this wing has a, a mural of Jonah painted on the wall thanks to uh, Yeji uh, using her gifts and talents to uh, paint that uh, decor on the wall a few years ago. Um, this, is, this is a story we all know. We grew up in Sunday school and hearing it, right? Um, for all the kids in here, you probably are familiar with this tale, and you've probably heard it and looked at the, the, the pictures illustrated in your kid's Bible maybe over the years. And so uh, this morning, I want to I try what is maybe a bold task to try to cover the entire story of Jonah in just a short time. And so uh, as you look in your Bibles, I want to do something a little different for our Scripture reading this morning. And uh, rather than reading through the entire book, which would, would take a lot of our time as it is a familiar story, I want to offer a reading from a children's book that I found uh, in, our, in one of the back classrooms here, and I want to just read this to you. I want you to follow along and see, uh, see how this story compares to maybe what's in, in your Bible. And so uh, just, just listen and follow along. You guys can remain seated for this uh, this morning, and uh, we'll read the story of Jonah from the beginner's Bible here. It says this, it says, God wanted to help the people in the great city of Nineveh. He said to Jonah, go and help these people. Tell them to stop doing bad things. At first, Jonah would not listen to God. He didn't want to obey God. He wanted to do something different. So he tried to run away from God. Jonah wanted to get far away from Nineveh. He boarded a big boat that was sailing far away from Nineveh, but God was watching Jonah. I love the, the images. He's like just kind of lounging here on the deck with maybe a beer in his hand or something. It's great. Um, so God sent a storm so big that the boat almost broke apart. The sailors were afraid. They said to Jonah, are you the reason for this bad storm? Jonah said to them, yes, I am the reason. But if you throw me into the sea, it will stop. So the sailors did what Jonah said, and the storm went away. Soon a great fish came up and swallowed Jonah. Jonah prayed very hard to God from inside this fish. He said, please help me. I am sorry. I don't read that in my Bible. After three long days and nights, God saved Jonah. The great fish spit Jonah out onto dry land. Then God said to Jonah again, go to Nineveh and help these people. Tell them to stop doing bad things. This time, Jonah listened to God. This time, he decided to obey God. He went to Nineveh and told the people what God had said. And the king of this great city said to this people, 
stop doing bad things and start loving God. And the people did. Hooray! God saved the city of Nineveh. Jonah obeyed God, and God was glad. And it gives this. When your mother, father, or teacher tells you to do good things, do you obey them? When God tells you good things to do, do you obey Him? That is what Jonah learned to do. That is obedience. Here's Jonah looking all happy, and uh, everything ended up nicely. Are you familiar with that story at least? Maybe hearing that story as, as you grew up? How does that compare to maybe what we read in our scriptures? So uh, let me pray, and then we will uh, dive together into this classic tale. Father, we come together as your people, a people who've been bought and, and saved by your grace to us, by the offer of your Son in our place to rescue us from the depths of our sin. We thank you for your mercy that is new every day, that uh, regardless of where uh, we have been and, and, and even the hardness of our own hearts, that your mercy still stands over us and the declaration of Jesus' atonement for us uh, is still accomplished. And so uh, we, we gather and we look uh, this morning into your word and ask that you would do uh, what you always do and just uh, work us over through it and by it. Pray that you'd give us eyes to see truths that maybe we haven't seen. Give us hearts uh, to, to believe in who you are and submit our lives fully to you even when we don't understand. So I pray that you'd guide us in this endeavor this morning. We look to you. It's for your glory that we gather. It's uh, for the sake of your name that we come before you. And we ask this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, maybe you were familiar with, with at least a version of that tale, and that harkens back to your childhood. Um, for me, uh, I have an, another memory of, of the story of Jonah. It's found in a song that, uh, um, that, that we used to sing growing up. I don't know if anybody's familiar with this song, but it started like this. I have the lyrics for us. I thought, I, I thought about singing it for you, but public singing is like the most terrifying thought to me, so uh, all you get is the lyrics from me. So uh, anyway, but it's this. It says, come and listen to my fearful tale of the ocean blue, how a man got swallowed by a whale. Yes, I know it's true. Anybody familiar with the song at all? Anybody? No? <laughs> oh, yeah, we got one. Justin, yes. Um, and so, and Jonah, Jonah did not obey God immediately. Jonah, Jonah, down in the depths of the deep blue sea. Then the last song went this. It said, if you try to run from God, beware. You'll discover, too, that the Lord above is everywhere watching all you do. And uh, there, there is some truth in, in this story, and, and even in this song, but, but the question is, is the story of Jonah just this miraculous tale that teaches us that uh, we better obey God or He's going to get us? Is that, is that, is that the vision of, of the story that is actually meant to, uh, to, to, is what that is meant to teach us? And as Jonah is a, a very well-known story, I actually believe that it is in many ways one of the most missed messages of Scripture. In fact, one of the things you probably maybe noticed in the, in the story I read from that kid's book was that, well, where's chapter 4? It's uh, seemingly been excluded from there. Maybe we don't know what to do with chapter 4. But I want to try to work through this, uh, this story today. And, and certainly this could be an entire sermon series that we preach over multiple weeks. We actually have done that many years ago. Um, so I, I will not presume this morning to be exhaustive in unpacking the many layers of significance that this book contains. Uh, the literary design is complex and it is connected in intricate ways to a multitude of Old Testament passages and images. Um, you could spend a lifetime reflecting on the symbols and the questions that this little book raises. 
And so this morning, I just want to try to walk through it and maybe give us fresh eyes to see it and start to piece together what is really the profound meaning of this book. And Jonah is found in that section of your Bible, often forgotten and neglected, called the Minor Prophets. And Jonah is unique among the prophets in that most of the prophets recount the oracles that the prophet proclaims, but Jonah is, is more of a narrative story revealing to us and, and allowing us to watch the actions of the prophet. And the book has a, a very complex design to it, and even the specific genre of, of Jonah is, is somewhat debated. But if we look closely and, and we see uh, the different elements of this book and how it is composed, we see that it is not simply just a historical recounting, but the way that it is written mimics what today we might call a parody or even satire. The book is filled with irony, with, with hyperbole, humor, various play on words, and even the reshaping and repurposing of many ancient concepts for new purposes. But ultimately, the book, as, as we look at it and reflect on it, it really reveals to us God's heart towards sinners. It tells us about His people's failures to be the representatives that He sends us in the world to be, and also reminds us of His faithfulness to us and His purposes despite the hardness of our own hearts. And so I want to quickly walk through this book observing these five movements of the story. And here are the five movements that we have. We have first, the prophet who won't speak, the God who pursues the runaway, the unlikely rescue of a rebel, the response of a receptive enemy, and the life lessons from a dead plant. So will you follow with me as we, as we track through this story this morning? We, we begin first with the prophet who won't speak here in the beginning of chapter 1. It begins with these uh, well-known words, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. And if you knew Hebrew, you would actually recognize very quickly that literally translated, his name would mean, would mean dove, the son of faithfulness which you won't actually recognize the deep irony in his name until you actually read the book again and have a better understanding of Jonah's character. So I'll just leave you with that. But God's word comes to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So where is God calling Jonah to go? Well, Nineveh, if you don't know your ge geography very well, is uh, roughly 500 plus miles east of Israel along the Tigris River and what is modern-day Iraq. And what does Jonah do? We all know the story well. He does not go to Nineveh. Instead, he arises, it tells us, to flee to Tarshish. Well, where's Tarshish? Well, it's certainly not on the way to Nineveh. As uh, you look at another map, we see Nineveh there, and Tarshish is all the way over <laughs> here. So, the location of Tarshish is somewhat, somewhat debated, but generally uh, there's, there's pretty good indication that it is uh, uh, at least a region far over there, but many believe that it was there on the uh, western tip of Spain, all the way across the Mediterranean. And this is where Jonah decides to head. If, if you understand Tarshish and how it's used throughout Scripture, it's also known as a source of wealth and prosperity of the world. And so the writer is, is, is using Tarshish here as an image of, of seeking a place of refuge apart from God's authority. And listen to the repetition of the words that are used to describe J Jonah's flight. He says that he, he flees to Tarshish from God's presence. He goes down to Joppa, finds a ship, 
pays the fare, goes down into the ship to go to Tarshish, away from the presence of God. Later on, we see that he, is, he, he goes down into the innermost parts of the ship, and there he falls asleep. The imagery is, is showing that in the most extreme way possible, he is running from God's call upon his life, heading as far uh, in the opposite direction in the known world as he could possibly go away from the place where God wants him. Not exactly an ideal prophet. As prophets were raised up to speak for God, to declare God's message to, to His people, and even, even declare His message to Israel's enemies, Jonah refuses to speak. And instead, he runs as fast as he can towards his own picture of a better world away from God's authority. Which takes us to our second movement in the story. The God who pursues the runaway. As Jonah is quietly asleep on this ship, as though he has found his, his way apart from God, we see in the story very quickly that God doesn't let him just run, but God pursues after him. It says that God hurls this great wind upon the sea, this mighty tempest. And just take notice of the language if, if you read through Jonah later. Like, everything is huge, everything is great. There's all these superlatives as if as everything is extreme, that's like intentional within the book to kind of create this kind of crazy, um, almost satirical scene. And the storm is so intense that the ship considers breaking apart. And we're introduced to some new characters, these sailors who are on the ship. They are terrified by the storm, and they, they begin to cry out to their gods. They're polytheistic. They believe in many gods. And so uh, they begin to try to lighten the, sh the load of the ship, as you know, and throw stuff overboard. Nothing is working, and they are, they are scared. The captain begins to search for this stranger who came on board, and he finds him asleep in the bottom of the ship, and he, he wakes him up and says, what are you doing? Wake up. Come on, help us. We've been crying out to our gods, and they ain't listening, so uh, why don't you give it a shot? Call out to your God, and, and perhaps maybe he'll actually listen and, and, and rescue us, and we won't die out here. If you know the story, they, 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 they try to figure out whose fault this is, and so they, they do this ancient practice of casting lots, little stones or sticks, to, to determine who, who, whose fault this was, and surprise, surprise, the lot falls to Jonah. So these men now have some questions for this stranger, and they say, hey, what's going on here? What's happening? Hey, who are you? Where are you from? What, what, what people are you a part of? What, what, what is your occupation? What do you do? And Jonah responds with this which I think we're meant to laugh at in light of what we've seen him do. He says, I am a Hebrew, and I fear Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And when they hear this, they're actually the ones who are afraid because they realize that this is Jonah's fault, that, that, that his God is coming after him, basically saying, what have you done? This is your fault. You got us into this. You got to get us out. So, so what do we need to do? And Jonah says, take me and throw me overboard. And at this point in the story, we, we actually aren't told whether this is kind of a self-sacrificial act on Jonah's part, like a virtuous move, or whether this was a selfish response saying, God, I don't care, I'm not going after you, I'm going to die, and whether this was actually a request for his own suicide. And I think that those options are, are, are left vague, and we're supposed to be questioning what is Jonah's heart and what is his motives at this point. 
And initially, the sailors are like, we, we, we can't just throw you overboard. They're, they're at least virtuous in some regard. They're not just, you know, murderers. So they try to row back to land. God increases the storm and holds them there. They can't get out of it. And so they say, okay. And then they cry out to God, say, hey, if, if this is what you want, I guess we'll do it, but don't hold this against us. And they take Jonah and they throw him into the sea. And immediately, as you know, the storm stops and the sailors respond by worshiping God. Do you see the irony here that it's these sailors, these, these pagans, these polytheists who in the story respond and are, and are fearful of Yahweh, where Jonah is the one who's asleep in the ship trying to ignore what's going on. And so the story arrives at what is often seen as this iconic, iconic climax in the story. As we envision Jonah tossed into the raging storm and sinking in the waves, the God who pursues the runaway isn't done with him yet. And this phrase that we'll see repeated says, the Lord appointed, the Lord appointed what you know as that great fish to swallow Jonah up. That's the close of our second scene. We move on in the story Two, the unlikely rescue of a rebel. You know, it's at this point in the story that oftentimes our minds start to begin to ask questions like this. Well, how could a, how could a man actually be swallowed by a fish, right? Like, is that even possible? And then remain alive for three days. Well, what, what kind of fish was it? Was it a whale? Was it a, you know, a humpback whale, a blue whale, a whale shark? You know, what, what kind of thing was it? Um, was this some special creation that God made in the moment? That's what we want to know. And then, like, is it, can it actually happen that a guy could live inside a ship? Could, could, could that take place? And we start to ask all these kinds of questions. And they're intriguing to ask and, and maybe worthwhile at some point. But if we focus on those things, I think we actually miss the purpose of this part of the story and really the message of the book. Ultimately, we have no clue what the species of this animal was, and that is not the point. What's actually more important is understanding the literary design of the book at this point. See, if we understand how the ancient Near Eastern cultures viewed the sea, this was this uncharted, untamed area of just darkness and chaos, just symbolizing just, just, just uh, uh, destruction and possibly death, even leading to, down to the underworld. And if we understand further the thought patterns and the mythology of the surrounding nations around Israel, how they viewed the beasts that lived in the depths of the sea, they believed that there were sea monsters and that they actually represented these forces of evil and chaos and disorder. We see this taken up in other biblical images as, such as Leviathan that we see throughout the Old Testament this great sea serpent that actually became symbolizing the enemy of Israel and God's people that, that, that God would defeat. And going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, it's Yahweh, Israel's God, that creates the great sea creatures in the oceans. And so I believe here, this great fish that God appointed is actually intended to kind of be a mockery of the surrounding nations and the mythology of the ancient Near Eastern cultures and their view of these monsters. What they thought of, it's been quoted, what they thought of as the monsters of the deep actually are represented here in this story as just a big old fish that's controlled by Yahweh. 
And he employs this creature that should be assumed to be an image of death and destruction, and he uses it as an unlikely means of rescue for his rebellious prophet. And it is within this beast that Jonah spends his next three days. And it is from within the inner parts of this fish that this poetic prayer of chapter 2 is offered. And in Jonah's song here, that we don't have time to read the whole thing, we have basically a mashup of all these psalms. Some 15, 16 different psalms are taken from and kind of brought together in this mashup of this song. And in the language of the psalms, Jonah begins to express his experience. As all throughout the story, what have we seen Jonah do? He goes down, 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 away from God, further away, and this song continues his descent. As he is cast into the deep, the waves overtake him. The waters are up around his throat. The seaweed begins to wrap around him, pulling him down deeper and deeper into the depths of the ocean, all the way down to the, to the depths and the base of the watery mountains, all the way to the bars of even the underworld. Jonah is pictured as having arrived at the doorstep of death. But as he descends, he has this image in, this, in his prayer describing that his eyes are, are fixed on the temple of God, God's presence. And he is, as he is about to die, his prayer goes out to God in his temple. And he declares this truth. He says, those who follow worthless idols forsake the covenant love of God. And he says that with a voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you, God, and what I have vowed I will do. And he declares salvation belongs to Yahweh. And this imagery of this prayer is a powerful picture of salvation. As Jonah has tried to run from God and find a place away from God's authority and His rule, he seeks a place where he gets to determine what is right and wrong, and it leads him further away, down, 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 all the way towards destruction and death. And it's only as he will lift his eyes to the presence of God will he actually find the rescue that he needs. And for the first time in our story, we begin to maybe see the heart of Jonah softening. But the question is, does he learn his lesson to just obey God? Let's press on to find out. And verse 10 is actually this incredibly funny punchline in the story that we're familiar with. Right after this intense emotional scene and Jonah outpouring this song to God, it says that God spoke to the fish and the fish vomited Jonah onto dry land. One writer pointed out this week to me that I think is actually intended to be humorous in this story at this moment. The Hebrew word for vomit, which is the literal word used, is ka. So Jonah was kaed onto the dry land, right? Like, like it's, supposed to be, it's supposed to be this funny play on words of this is, this is what happens to him. He's, he's vomited out of the ship or of the, of the fish. And it's the sea creature that we should expect to be the thing that consumes and destroys Jonah. God uses as, as a means of his deliverance. It's salvation through the waters of judgment by means of death. And Jonah's journey is offered to us as an image of death and rebirth we'll come back to later. It takes us to our fourth movement in the story, the response of a receptive enemy. 
As you all know how the story goes from here, God again gives Jonah his second chance and calls out to Jonah saying again, go to Nineveh and call out the message that I will give you. And Jonah arises and this time he goes to Nineveh. He's learned his lesson, right? Our hero has arisen and he's going to save the day. Well, let's see. He heads off to Nineveh, this significant city in the ancient world. It was the capital of the great Assyrian Empire, that, that, that empire that was building to the east of Israel, was conquering nation after nation that would later eventually come and sweep in and, 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 and take the northern kingdom of Israel off into exile. And the Assyrians were a brutal people. I almost just displayed some pictures that, 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 that we have, that we found in excavations of, of carvings on ancient walls and courts that the Assyrians left us. But I figured with the kids and all, maybe it wouldn't be the best images. But the Assyrians were known to dismember their enemies, to fillet off their skin, to impale people on poles and, and put them up for display. And they were proud of it. So from our perspective, Jonah maybe had some, I don't know, legitimate reasons for not wanting to go to Nineveh. They were a terrifying people, and they imposed their power and control through terror and intimidation. But Jonah, after his experience in the fish, submits to God's authority at this point and heads off to Nineveh. And it says that the city is, is so big that it's a three days journey to get, it, to get into it or to get across it or around it. And it says that Jonah then goes in one day and then he gives this message to the people of a rather uninspiring sermon, if we're honest. And he says this, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. This is Jonah's sermon. It's only five words in Hebrew. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's an odd message, right? There's not a call to repentance, not a heartfelt call to come to the altar and turn. There's not a mention of God's name, no indictment of their evil, just a declaration of imminent destruction. So what's going on here? Like, like there's a sense to begin to question, is, is Jonah maybe trying to sabotage this mission? And what's really interesting, and I, 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 there was a multiple sources that pointed this out this week, is when we actually look at the word that's used, that's, that's usually translated as overturned, that overturned can actually, in the Hebrew, and even kind of in our English translation, can have two meanings to it. There's two ways it could, it could be understood. It could mean that, means to, to, to destroy or overthrow, and some of your translations actually carry it through to, to make that clear, to destroy or overthrow. Or it could potentially have the idea of to change or to reverse. So the question is, which one does it mean here? What did Jonah mean? And I think that's actually the beauty of the way the book is composed, that there's an intentional uncertainty here where what Jonah means for destruction and a, and a declaration of their judgment, maybe God actually intends a different kind of change to overturn their hearts and bring about a repentance. I mean, just look at the response from the people. As soon as Jonah announces this, it says that they believed in the Lord. They begin to call for a, for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, the symbolic way of expressing remorse and repentance. 
The king even comes down from his throne and joins in. He declares this edict to everyone, that, that, that everyone in the, in the city, even the animals, which has to be this comedic element, even the, the, the animals need to fast and pray and turn from their evil violence. They believe the message of Jonah in a heartbeat. And they respond and they say, who knows? Maybe God will spare us. It's an incredible revival. And God, as you know, at the end of chapter 3, turns from His plans of judgment and does not destroy Nineveh. And again in the story, we see that it's actually the pagans, the evil enemies of Assyria, they are the ones who respond immediately to God's message. And it's at this point in the story that most children's books end, right? Jonah and the whale concludes in this nice, clean finish. Jonah has learned his lesson. The Ninevites are saved and God is good. Let's all go make our craft and then go home. But did you realize that the story actually goes on? And I think apart from chapter 4, we actually missed the whole purpose and, and, and punch of this book. And so I want to take us into our final scene. The life lessons from a dead plant. If this was your first reading of the book of Jonah, how do you expect Jonah to feel at this point in the story? Like he just preached the shortest and most powerful sermon in human history, right? Like, like in terms of prophetic success, he knocked it out of the park. Like, like everyone, even the cows are at the altar repenting, right? Like, like this, is, this is incredible. I mean, Jonah could make quite a career off of this, right? Get on, go on a speaking tour, launch his Instagram account with all of his followers, maybe write a book. Maybe he could uh, title it, How to Win Pagans and Influence Livestock. <laughs> I was nervous about that one, but I thought it was good. You know, I, as a preacher, I feel pretty good if at least one person at least says like, hey, good job, that was, the, you know, appreciated that. And I'm like, hey, at least somebody was listening, like that's a good day. But if I had you all in sackcloth next week and just, <laughs> just, just like here with your dogs, just like moaning and crying out, like, like that's a good Sunday, right? Like that's a, that's a, that's a success. But how does Jonah respond? Read the beginning of chapter 4. The ESV says, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. Literally translated, it was evil to Jonah, a great evil, and he was angry. Not the response that you expect from Jonah at this point. And he, he prays a very different prayer than we saw back in chapter 2. And he, he, he calls out to God, almost yelling at God, isn't this what I said would happen? Like, this is why I headed to Tarshish. And the penny drops for us. We haven't really known his full motive until now, but it's revealed. The reason why he ran away from God is because he knew what God was like. He said, God, I knew you were going to do this. I knew you were going to extend mercy and grace to these people, and you're wrong on this one. They don't deserve it. But I knew that you were a gracious God. You were merciful. 
You were, you were slow to anger. You were abounding in steadfast love. You relent from disaster. Like, I knew you were like this, and I knew that this is what was going to happen. Well, Jonah conveniently leaves off of this quotation taken from Exodus 34, where God has declared his character. He leaves off that, that, that attached to, to this, 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 this character of God that is gracious and merciful, that he's also just, that he will not pardon the guilty. And that's what Jonah wanted God to do. He, he didn't want the gracious part of God right now over the, the, the city of Nineveh. He wanted the judgment of God to fall on Nineveh. And he believed that that's what they deserved. This cruel, evil people who were oppressing even his people. And he had a disdain for them. And he didn't trust who God was at the moment. And this is what it comes down for Jonah. Jonah is furious with God because God has shown mercy to those that Jonah himself refuses to show mercy towards, even after he himself has just been the recipient of that same mercy from God. And Jonah is done living in God's world, so he says to God, he says, take my life, it's better for me just to die right now than to keep on living. A kind of extreme, right? Like we're supposed to see Jonah as this, this clown in many ways. But God in his kindness and his gentleness with his prophet, he asks him this probing question. He says, Jonah, is it good for you to be angry? Is there anything good coming from your anger right now? Jonah's so upset in the story, he looks as, as, as though he, he turns on God, he ends the conversation and he heads out of the city says that he climbs a, a, a hill to the east of Nineveh. I wish we had time to unpack the directional language there, but we don't. He, he builds this small structure up on this hill east of the city, and he sits down in the shade of the structure that he's built, and he waits. He waits to see what God is going to do with the city. I don't know what he's waiting for necessarily. Perhaps he thinks, well, Nineveh's not really going to turn. They're so evil and wicked. It's just a show. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll go back to their old ways and God will get them after all. So I guess I'll sit here and, and see, see what's going to happen. And then we have this crazy story about this plant. I think the reason we leave it off of a lot of our stories is we don't know what to do with it. Like, again, we read this, this, this phrase that God appointed something. We see it multiple times, and in every time we see that, uh, God is trying to, to teach Jonah something. And this time, he appoints a plant. It doesn't matter what it is. Some translations say a gourd, others say a vine, or some other flowering plant. Of, you know, we, we don't know. What, the, what it is, again, is not important, but what it does is what matters. It grows up over Jonah, and it provides shade over his head to protect him from the blazing sun. Apparently, Jonah's first structure wasn't fully sufficient, and God provides him a better shade. And look at Jonah's response. He goes out here just in hot anger against God. But then when he has this plant over his head shading him, in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says, So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah hasn't been glad, happy, joyful through this whole story. But he put a little shade over his head and puts him in a really good mood, right? It's like living in Colorado some of these, some of these days lately, right? Like, he is, 
exceedingly happy. And it's actually the, 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 the structure of the language is actually the opposite of, of, of the, what he is formerly described as being angry uh, previously. So he had this great hot anger, and now over the plant he has this exceeding joy. He's happy about the shade. He's loving his shade that God has given him. But then the next day the sun comes up, and God appoints something else, a worm. This worm comes along and somehow destroys the plant. It dies and withers. Then this, the, the, this east wind comes, which is usually a form of destruction, and many commentators believe that actually this wind destroys his own shelter as well. And so Jonah is there fully exposed to the heat, and the sun is beating down, and the wind is blowing, and it's miserable, and he is hot and uncomfortable, all to the point where again he cries out to God and says, just take my life. I'm done with this. And God asks him another question, just like he did before. He said, Jonah, do you do well to be angry over this plant? And Jonah, without hesitation, says, absolutely, yes, angry enough to die. Like, what are we supposed to do with this Jonah character? He's back and forth and all over the place. And listen to how God responds to him in this question that closes out the book. We have God's concluding question. He says this, he says, Jonah, you were upset about this little plant, something for which you have not worked, nor did you do anything to make it grow. It grew up overnight and then it died just as quickly. Says Jonah, should I not be even more concerned about Nineveh, this enormous city? There are more than 120,000 people in it who do not know their right from wrong, as well as many animals. Roll the credits. There's the end of our story. And for some of you in here, you may find the ending of this Jonah story to be incredibly unsatisfying. Maybe you prefer the storybook ending. It's like watching a movie that, that ends abruptly and you're like, you're like, what? It can't be over. Like, like, like what happened to that guy? What, what about that other thing that went on? What happened there? You got to finish the, finish the story, right? Like, like if you're like me, you want all the loose ends tied up. You want to know what's going on. But when done well, I think we all know that the unknown ending actually becomes a powerful means of offering us, the reader, the opportunity for deep and lasting reflection. You see, we could sit here and so easily see the absurdity of Jonah's character, like, what is wrong with this guy? But then, as we, as we read and are confronted with God's final question, this question stands there now to us as a mirror, to us as the reader, inviting us to reflect deeply and see the Jonah in all of us. It pushes us to begin to ask these questions that certainly Jonah is wrestling with. Like, how do we respond to a God 
whose character may not align with our expectations of the way that we think, we think things should work in the world. When our life isn't going the way that we think it should, when we've lived a certain way and we think we deserve something else and it just isn't lining up that way, what is up with the God that would allow that, that rules over that? When we see our enemies and those we hate flourishing and, and getting away with it, what, what is wrong with the world? How can God be over this? It pushes us to wrestle with, will we actually submit to His ways even when I don't understand? We're challenged to ask, what does it mean for God to be merciful, to be gracious and slow to anger, and at the same time uphold His perfect justice? We're pushed to ask, what does that mean for me, for the darkness and the brokenness of my own heart? And then what does that actually mean for my enemies? For those people in my life who, who have hurt me deeply, who have offended me, who have wronged me, who need to pay for what they've done. How do we reconcile a God like that? And how do we recognize Him as, as having both of these characteristics together? pushes us to ask, what are the little things in our life that we get so consumed with, that we look to as a source of satisfaction and joy, and then something that is going to bring us life, the things that cloud our vision so we don't even see, and that keep us from genuinely loving others around us. We're pushed to ask, can we see and believe through this brief story that God is in sovereign control over His world. And He will accomplish His purposes no matter what. Nothing can stand in the way, not even our rebellious hearts. And we believe that God will and can use a variety of means to accomplish His purposes in this world, both in redeeming a sinful and broken humanity and also humbling and transforming His people. You see, we are like Jonah. We fail to be the mediators of God's grace to the nations that God has called us to be. But as much as this story confronts us with our deficiency, Jonah's story also offers us an image of rescue that points us to a better Jonah. And this is what Jesus actually declared and took on Himself. In Matthew chapter 12, He was confronted by a group of scribes and Pharisees saying, hey, give us a sign. Do another miracle to prove who you are. And Jesus says, I'm not going to give you any sign except this, the sign of Jonah. He says, ultimately, the, 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 nation of, the, the generation of Nineveh is going to rise up in the end and, and pronounce judgment on you because they repented, but you won't even believe. And then he compares Jonah's journey in the fish to what he will experience later. And just as Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth. And Jesus rebukes them when He says this and condemns them to ultimately be judged because of their rejection of Him. And He ends by saying, let me tell you that, let me tell you that something greater than Jonah is here. And Jesus is revealed to us as the, as the true prophet of God 
The one who humbly and obediently follows the Father's call and he heads towards his enemies in his condescension to become a man. And he comes to invite his enemies to repent. He's the prophet who climbs a hill outside of another city, the city of Jerusalem, not to watch and sit in judgment over it, but to lay down his very life to bring them deliverance. And even the very ones who hang him on the cross, what is it that he declares over them? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do could also say they don't know their right hand from their left. Jesus is the true prophet who shares the Father's heart of mercy and grace, and at the same time, he must uphold his own justice. And it's only in the cross that we see those two realities of his perfect character perfectly united. The one who was cast into the chaos of this sin-cursed world and was swallowed up in death As he entrusted himself to the Father, he is brought through the waters of death and emerges out of the tomb on the third day to new life. This is what Jonah ultimately points us to. And maybe you're here and you have been running from God. You've been trying to find your own way to Tarshish, to find your own Eden apart from God's authority but you know that he's been pursuing you and you are trying to fall asleep and ignore him. Will you turn and receive God's grace that he has provided to you the means of your rescue? Will you believe in the one who spent the three days in the belly of the tomb and emerged to provide you and I resurrection life? And church, will we look deeply into the mirror of Jonah? into our own lives and see the ways that our self-righteousness clouds our vision of God's character, that we want those elements of His love and His mercy for ourselves, but we, we don't want others to experience it because they deserve judgment. Will we see how our hatred and our prejudice actually hinders us from seeing those around us who are image bearers of God created by God, ones whom God loves and longs for us to carry the message of redemption, of hope, and rescue to? Will we let the final question of this small story just hang there this week as we reflect deeply on who this God is? Should He not pity a world in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left, and also many cattle. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story. There's so much more that could be said and so many more questions to be asked and answered and wrestled through. So I pray that you would continue to reveal to us the ways in which we fail to embody your heart, your heart of mercy and kindness, whether it's in in, in the way that we, we view those across the political aisle, whether it's the way that we view those just across our street, or whether even just in our own home. I pray that we would have a heart like you, 
of grace and mercy, that we would invite people to experience the mercy and the grace that has been poured out on ourselves. And we trust also in Your perfect justice that You will right all wrongs, that one day You will bring a reckoning. But You provided us the means of, of finding rescue now through the death of Your Son and His life in our place. And it was on that cross that Your perfect justice and Your mercy were united. And through that, it was extended to us so that we could find life and reconciliation. So I pray that You would help us be a people who live in light of these realities, in light of these truths, and let us marvel and worship You in light of what You have accomplished through us. We pray this in the glorious name of Jesus. Amen.